0: This is Sheila
1: Pearl. Let's talk about making love better. This is a podcast in its early stages. And I have invited a very good friend of mine, Brian Baird, to offer us episode number two of this new podcast that we have launched as of what I call Love Day, February 14th. And we're continuing this conversation because making love better is about every relationship you have, whether it's with your sweetheart, whether it's with your children, your friends, your siblings, your parents, the people that are precious to you. And you wanna make that relationship more precious. So this is about making love better in every way. So the first episode that I I talked about with Brian, talked about kind of the the basic elements of loving. And and we just got the conversation going. And towards the end of the conversation, we made kind of a left turn into an aspect of love that to me as both a relationship uh, coach and a bereavement counselor for the past 40 years, I've learned that grief is a sweet companion and sometimes a painful reality about love. And uh, So I have a little quote that I want to begin with, just to set the stage for this conversation with Brian, and then I'm going to introduce Brian, who will introduce himself as well. So grief never ends, but it changes. It is a passage, not a place to stay. Grief is not a sign of weakness, nor a lack of faith. It is the price of love.
0: Okay. <clears throat> Hi everybody, I'm Brian Baird. <laughs> hey, um I love that that entire quote that you have. Who is is that your work or is that the
1: No, it's anonymous. I have no idea. I found okay. it on Facebook and I have no idea.
0: Okay. So,
1: <clears throat>
0: um I'd like to take that last statement where grief is the price of love and temporarily pause. But I do have a comment and I do have a comment about that um that I'd like to make a little later on. So, <laughs> um, in the Inside of this entire discussion, um, which we talked about last time, is this how grief was another way to uh, advance our awareness of authentic love, deep love, not conditional love and um, and then you had said something about the fact that we should uh, maybe make that part two of your inaugural uh, uh, podcast energy. And I'm happy to come back and do this with you. So thank, thank you for having me.
1: I'm grateful. As uh, as uh, those of you who joined us for the first episode know, Brian has been a friend of mine and a colleague of mine for the past 15 years. And we are in uh, aligned fields, but do th- things that are very different as well. So uh, if you listen to episode one, you know that we uh, get very deep into the the, tre- the the nooks and crannies of the conversation, and Brian is a person that I value deeply for his life experience and his expertise professionally as well, so what I've invited him to do is to engage in this conversation about grief, because he has become well acquainted with grief as I have, and I wanted him to tell you his story about how it's changed him, so go go for it.
0: Oh, so I just should start yapping away, right?
1: Just start yapping
0: away. Well, what came up last time was a that little cliffhanger, right? The the ideas is that you were asking what was it that was in my journey that made me um, <coughs> more adequately, or th- maybe um, I would say for me, it enhanced my con- my connection to love. Um, and you know, from my journey and my experience, um, uh, I would say that. Um, the, my early stages of grief, I mean, they all tied going back to the fact that I had a, 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 a parent, a father, who was um, prone to um, unexpected, well, I guess at some level you could expect it, but at random triggers, there would be no understanding what the trigger was, it was just a trigger of some kind, and then uh, profound rage. And uh, as a young boy, I was a target. Uh, I was convenient. It was the older boy of the two boys in the family. Um, and whether we were both there or not, uh, I, if I was in the room, I, I was uh, uh, prone to, uh, to taking on an, his energy. And it um, often it was ended up with welts on my rear end and my legs from a belt. He loved the belt. I don't know if he learned that from his father or not, uh, but he was really handy with that belt. And uh, created dread and all kinds of things. So you know, it's like you look at my personal development uh, at the time, and all I can say is, is that I it was a wonky, wobbly experience. Um, and inside of this thing was my both my parents were uh, um I, I, without I don't want to sound judgmental, but both my parents had their own developmental issues, so they were in many ways still children.
1: Well let, let, let me just jump in. Mm-hmm. I would say that would apply to probably most of our parents who have some form of dysfunction that cre- that uh, creates our dysfunction. Right.
0: So the challenge being is you know as for me as a parent was not re- introducing I'll just going to sidestep this or sidebar this for a little bit. I didn't want to be a parent because I very much saw in my, or at least I believed, from some of my own personal patterns and observations, is that whatever parenting style was done to you, you did to your kids. And, and there is a degree of truth to that. I mean, how many parent, how many people do we hear was like, "I said I would never be like my mother," and oh my gosh, my her words came right out of my mouth, and you know, and they have regret and pain. To even having said those words, because they know what those words felt like when they were kids, and they just did it to theirs. And uh, I, uh, I just it. decided really? I didn't want to be a, a parent. And when in, in my first pass it, yeah, discussing it, so go ahead.
1: So, uh, you know, before I forget, I want to jump in and <clears throat> add the caveat that. Yes, it, it, uh, in fact, a famous book was written, My Mother, Myself, which was really about that whole idea. This woman uh, decided she didn't want to be like her mother. I'm not going to be like my mother. And Of course, she turned out to be just like her mother. So part of the distinction that she discovered after all of her interviews with other daughters who had uh, vowed they'd never be like their mother, uh, was that if the, if the daughter focused only on not wanting to be like the mother, they would most likely become like the mother because the, the universe doesn't know the difference between I will or won't be like such and such. All the universe knows is you're focusing on that. So the magic uh, formula is to be aware of what you don't want to be and then choose to be specifically what you want to be. So don't focus on what you don't want. Focus on what you do want.
0: Right. And I'm a firm believer in that, especially since I also believe that it's not just the universe. I, from uh, all of my work. And the different therapies and modalities that I work with is that the um, the unconscious mind cannot hear the no part; it only okay. hears the words, <clears throat> and so it will. If you you know, uh, no anger versus anger, you know, no love versus love. It do, all it knows is that your the word no doesn't belong, and it just it evicts it from the conversation. <clears throat> so. I didn't want to be a parent though. Had I did have like it wasn't like like if I had become a parent and said I didn't want to be like my dad, you're right. I could have very much been like my dad. Um and in fact in my early twenties, even without being a parent, I was a prone to high, I won't say as deep a sense of uh, um an uh a sense of rage or at least in my own personal observation of who I was, but I was easy to ire. I was a hothead. Uh and um uh, and triggerable in that regard. So I would say it was probably good that I didn't become a parent, um, at least in my first pass at looking at this. I am a parent today though. <clears throat> and um, when I met, I um, guess we're gonna have a little sidebar from the whole discussion about grief, but it will lace back in. We'll get this all back into the picture. Um, so I, I met a woman who wanted kids and um, I was um, at least I'll say smart enough <laughs> to know that, to marry somebody who wants kids. And if you're not gonna have kids, that's a recipe for a, a kind of disaster. <clears throat> so I did some soul searching and I realized, okay, I will, uh, I'll, be, I'll be a parent. I just won't be a parent who gets involved with the kids. I'll just make the money or whatever it was, go- was gonna do and let her be the parent. So you laugh, but that's, that was the, that was the logic.
1: The, yeah. Well, it's, it's funny now. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure it wasn't very funny then, but looking back, we can see how avoiding the very thing that you uh, want to avoid. Doesn't work. Does it?
0: Right. I, I was very concerned that I would inflict harm in the same way it was done to me. So, so I had worked, I had these coping mechanisms that were like, you know, first not to be a parent at all. And then to be like this kind of, remote parent or distant parent um so but i I also thought someplace underneath the hood i must have known that that wasn't completely uh rational so what i did do is i put off um parenthood for a while um all kinds of tricks i had placed in the marriage not that we didn't have our our physical moments, but I figured out ways to make sure there was no baby from those physical moments. So, uh, and then I studied parenthood. I watched, I literally, every time I saw parent child thing was going on, whether it was at the mall, the beach, a party, or we were invited to dinner at somebody else's house who had kids. I watched all the dynamics and I could see this. I like that. I don't. And I was doing analysis as to why these things were happening. What was going on? Like when, you know, I saw, Kids were having temper tantrums. It, after a lot of studying, I began to realize the kids are having temper tantrums because the parents create the temper tantrums. So, I um, I learned a lot in those eight years. We did not have a child in the first eight years of our marriage. We created its own contention in the marriage, and that will get back to another avenue of what we're discussing here, uh, which has to do with grief. But the um, I will say that by the time I became a parent, one, I was no longer a fit to ire didn't happen it took it to this day and from that day on it takes a lot for me to get angry about something <clears throat> not because I suppress it but because I learned <coughs> to um, to bring out a different kind of energy um, I'm not sure how I did it uh, for, at the moment it's not clear to me I just know that I changed that angry side of me I just I just uh, I, I didn't erase it per se I just no longer needed it if that makes any sense. I released well, uh, and revealed a different version of it.
1: Well, well, they say everything begins with intention. And I'm hearing that you had decided long ago, your intention was to not be like your father. So, you know, your, your awareness wasn't what you didn't want to be. Mm-hmm. And so then your awareness took you to the next step. And that was your intention was to discover how you wanted to be. In other words, you knew what you didn't want to be, but you wanted to watch examples of what you wanted to be because you didn't grow up with those. Right. So you needed, you needed role models, you needed examples, whether it's real people or movies or books or whatever, because it was your intention to be different, to somehow manage and, uh, ch- and to channel that anger, to perhaps uh, manage it better.
0: Um, so yeah. So I think channeling maybe what was really, maybe, maybe, uh, you know, it's not that I never got angry again. I mean, it certainly was when the, the, the marriage was had its challenges and if there was anybody who could, um, could, I'll use the phrase, push my buttons. My bride was of able course. to do that. Of of <laughs> and, uh, but it was never as volatile. It was never like that uh, out of control. Although I was loud. It was never like it was when, and, like when I was in my twenties and it was never like it was when I was uh, experiencing this at the hand of my father. So, but what happened though, is when I was a child, I learned that in order to find a way to avoid those uh, whippings and beatings, I started to create this public persona and, um, inside of that persona, by the way, was to show no, um, to show no pain, to show no, um, um, no
1: emotion or just well, no emotion?
0: almost no emotion, but to, mostly to show, um, that uh, I can't be hurt by this hand. And when I started taking on that energy, um, uh, it changed something between my father and me. It's not that he was any better a man. It's just that. I think he realized that he wasn't getting from me what he used to get, which was whatever, terror, fear, anger, screaming. I think he needed that, and I was no longer giving him that. <clears throat> so um, so I, I began to take all of this stuff that he had done um, um, at, to me as a child um, I look back on it now and say he did it for me because it's formed very much my journey of who I am today. But back in those days, it was, you certainly weren't thinking, oh, this is a learning lesson. You don't have those things coming along. <laughs> you just kind of go, I've, I I got to somehow rather stop this and manage this. And, um, so, um, he was still prone to rage and he still sometimes was prone to the being heavy with the hand. It was more immediate and reactive and it wasn't continuous like it was when I was a kid. <clears throat> um, I learned also those as these things were actually grief points in my life. And um, because I had learned to put this mask on, I also had learned to pick up the carpet and sweep this grief under the carpet, which I continued to do for a lifetime.
1: So could you explain what you mean by those grief points? That's really important.
0: Well, yeah, I'll give you an idea is when you're a young child, you're five years old, six years old, and a parent attacks you, um, there's all kinds of stuff that goes on there, uh, betrayal, um, because betrayal of trust, betrayal of love, betrayal of all host of other things, because as a five or six year old, we're born to be loved. We're born to feel love. We're born to give love. We're all these kinds of things. <clears throat> and, um, now we start to look at, um, you know, I'm, I'm now seven years old. I'm starting to look at it, it. goes, okay, that's done. This guy, I can't count on this guy for that stuff. Um, it's painful. It's whatever but I um, <clears throat> I never was given first of all, the equipment to process grief.
1: Of course.
0: Um, because my parents were both in this childlike state. Um, my mother, who I have recently had conversations with about this, she has no memory of these moments. Uh, she's pretty much was take, fending for herself to such a degree she's blocked out any memory of these assaults that took place.
1: Okay, but <clears throat> before you go on, I want to clarify what that grief point was about for you right. as a child because you weren't processing it directly but the mechanism the internal defense mechanism was the so push grief
0: push. is loss right
1: grief is loss right and
0: so loss. i had loss of innocence
1: yeah and, and oh, yes okay so that yes so loss of uh, mm-hmm.
0: support loss of what i would say is a rational vector of love you know true love <coughs> um um loss of stability um all kinds of things that were i had losses of and, and, and loss each of, one of these
1: lo- loss of trust loss trust, of of, right. of of comfort loss of mm-hmm. faith loss of uh, being able to And I'll even say
0: loss of truth.
1: Right. Right. And I want to underscore the the first thing you said this is the loss of loss of innocence And that was one of the first themes that we decided last time to jump into because grief is and has been for you and is for most of us, a loss of innocence. And we don't see it that way. Right.
0: When you're a child, you don't, you have no, nothing to process it with. You just know it's,
1: boom. Well, frankly, even as an adult, we don't look back and see that as an element of grief or as a, or the, uh, we don't really think about the distinction of that being a loss of innocence either until we become more thoughtful, perhaps more philosophical. So talk more about that.
0: So, um, so over the, over my childhood and my parents got divorced, which is another loss, you know, even though my father was uh, created a lot a of wobbly, wonky childhood experience. Yeah. Um, you think of your parents as, although he was a little bit of a Sir Galahad, you know, around the country, come home when he feels like it type person. <clears throat> um, but I still thought of this as the family unit. So when my parents got divorced, which was inevitable from, you know, from the, you mm-hmm. know, as, as an adult looking back on those years, but, <clears throat> um, but, uh, and, you know, and, and even as a child, you, you, I don't care when you, when parents divorce and the kids are still young. I don't care how carefully you talk to them. They're still going to think they had a role in it.
1: Absolutely. And, and, you know, until we started to talk about this, I hadn't, I hadn't remembered uh, and really connected the dots for myself about the role that my parents' divorce played in my sadness and depression, which was a form of grief for a child. Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, in perhaps because of the way society worked at the time, we were very focused on these male influences. And I'm not suggesting we shouldn't have male influences today. I'm just saying that there are mechanisms we can use to provide male influences, healthy male influences in a child's life that don't have to be a biological parent. So, uh, but, uh, you know, but I I didn't have any, there was no replacement uh, for. Uh, what I already didn't have there was nothing coming in and putting in this healthy guidance
1: right. in terms of how right.
0: to be a human being how to be a person eventually how to be a man um, uh, how to adult as I was getting into those you know those things mm-hmm. um, and so so um, and then I think learning to process grief to whatever degree you can as a child is still a pathway towards adulting, to make up a phrase or that we've all been using. It probably is in the dictionary already anyway. So adulting, let's just call it the, the path to adulthood is adulting, right? It so uh, yes. so, um, so there were all of these these sort of wobbly wonky experiences. Um, and every time I had a form of a loss, whether it was the divorce, the issues with my that started with my father, um, love interests along the way. Um, and by the time I arrived in my twenties, <clears throat> um, I was, um, uh, pretty good at, uh, just taking grief and shelving it or sweeping under the carpet. Mm. Um, now I think without going into all the details, you and I had an off the show conversation about a stage where I was in very serious state of depression in college Yes, and I had made a, de- a decision to never go that low again. Um, a very, very striking, conscientious, not decision followed by actions, because decisions don't mean a bunch by themselves. But I had, and I had made this decision, and then followed through with determined action that I would never feel that low again. And I would say that I, and it probably was a lifesaver for a variety of reasons. Um, I never got that low again. here's the challenge. So I've since looked back on my life and looked at other people who've done similar things. When you mute the lows, you mute the highs. Yes. So you end up living in a very narrow band of emotion, which after time will actually be uh, profoundly of disservice to your development, your health, a whole host of other things.
1: Yes. So I had told you in that uh, sidebar conversation last, last time that, I learned from singing the truth of that. And I do, I was in the midst of developing my voice. I was a professional singer for uh, about 40 years. And in the early stages of developing my voice, I went to a voice builder who helped me develop the lower voice so that I can sing higher. And he said, if you don't develop your lower voice, you won't be able to hit the high notes with great strength and it's really to the point in life that if we're not willing to go to the depths of our emotions we're not able literally we're not able to feel the heights so we steal our own capacity to feel great joy when we think that we're saving ourselves from pain and suffering by not allowing ourselves to feel great pain.
0: I think your physical lifetime analogy for this is a perfect description of what happens in the psyche of people who do like I did, which is where they have some or other managed a process. <clears throat> it doesn't mean that depression isn't there. It just means that the way that it's managed is to kind of almost like the depression is underneath the, the operating bands of your emotions. So you've found a way to suppress the, 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 the depression and the grief that goes with it. And, and it carries along um, almost the, the, the phrase I would use is perturbating or, or um, um, maybe uh, getting ready to boil type of thing underneath. Oh, you uh, mean and-
1: percolating
0: percolating is another word perturbating percolating oh, so you have
1: okay yes. so
0: you have like this uh, this place where eventually though the boil is going to happen there's nothing that you can really do about that uh, it's just that because of my determination it was actually decades I operated in this on this parameter and I and I was able to replace a lot of uh, my emotional, construct with what I would call intellectual construct. Um, very, very interested um, and well-voiced and versed in science uh, and engineering. Um, and, uh, you know, even part of my college degree uh, had an engineer, electrical engineering minor, um, yeah, <coughs> which was, um, you know, the, once you're in engin- once you study engineering, you kind of look at everything as a system too. So you're you you just evaluating life and and whether you wanted to talk to me about particle physics or cosmology, or you wanted to talk to me about medicine or something. I felt I I probably had something to say about just about everything because well, I, I know, manage my life around data and facts.
1: So another way of <clears throat> of uh, framing that is that you learn to stay in your head, to be rational mm-hmm. and not go to your heart.
0: Mm-hmm. And I bet. Any one of us, anybody listening or you and I could probably relate to knowing somebody who was such a raving intellectual that they were completely almost like devoid of emotion and maybe for the very same reasons that I did.
1: Yes, <coughs> um, yes so, absolutely.
0: So I've met a few people they were so snobby and un, uh, unrelatable because of their intellectualism and they would hold on to their intellectualism with great pride. In the meantime, um, I now look at my life as it's uh, been revealed to me today, and I'm going thank heavens there's there's room for change. <clears throat> because um, you know, and and I'll talk a bit more about my journey on um, how the vectors of grief and all these things came to play. As you said before, is grief is a lesson, or is they, it is your lessons, or in, as we've experienced loss along the way, where we need to sort of we're doing some regrouping typically if we're not sweeping it under the carpet and learning how to turn these challenges with grief and possibly sadness and, and avoid depression by not permanently sustaining grief. And, um, and then uh, it becomes almost like rocket fuel for, uh, for um, the kinds of development and stretching that leads to profound joy. And I would say profound joy was not in my vocabulary—at least not emotionally—in my vocabulary. It was intellectually, perhaps, and not emotionally, mm-hmm. um, because I was in that narrow band of emotional operation. <clears throat> so uh, um, I met, married a uh, wonderful woman. We're now divorced, but she—you know—she's still a wonderful woman. Uh, you know, we uh, we love each other. We just—it you know, was clear from the very get-go. In in many ways, we should not have been living together. We made it 24 years we adopted a beautiful little girl from china who's now 19 years old and um
1: she's beautiful
0: <laughs> she's in every way intellectually in every you know, way. Just, like just brilliant kid um and um <clears throat> the um the thing that was interesting is is that when the first four years of our marriage it was kind of a honeymoon the last 20 years of the marriage it was a divorce in the making And so one of the things that I had alluded to in the last show was, is the ideas is that I processed my grief in the marriage. So when the marriage was over, it was almost a relief.
1: So so let's not step over that. That's a really important distinction. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I'm sure there are a lot of people listening to our conversation, Brian, who have experienced the same phenomenon that they somehow knew that what they had once had that may have been magical for a brief period of time was no longer. And then they spent the remainder of that relationship that they stayed in grieving. So that as you say, by the time you did decide to divorce, you'd almost you know, completed much of the grieving process because as we know, grieving goes through stages right. and the final stage is acceptance and making your peace with it. Mm-hmm. It sounds like that's kind of what you did.
0: To a degree, though. I want to be very clear, as I was still operating in this narrow emotional band.
1: Oh, oh, you mean you had not yet found the... um,
0: And this is a fairly recent years. Oh. Recent years, uh, like you've known me a long time. So remember the Brian that was always button heads with you intellectually. Yes. (laughs) And then remember the Brian who's like almost like pain-free experience for you today. Um, You know, a lot of this changes only in the last few years, you know. Exactly. um, and so, um so,
1: so remind us what the cliffhanger was, so we know where we're going. The cliffhanger. Well, there's
0: another you know the you know the um, the vectors of grief in my life having been fairly recently finally processed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've only been telling one aspect of it so far. I mean we could say one aspect was how it built up starting with my father. That was something I didn't even allude to last time. Uh, what I really did say in last time is that one of my uh, vector resolution patterns, uh, was began, but it was certainly by no means matured or fully revealed or re- realized during the marriage. But it was very clear I was already grieving during the marriage <clears throat> because, um, in, to the you know, <clears throat> processing grief and experiencing grief aren't always the same thing. And that's I want to make that very clear from my perspective is that I was feeling grief doesn't mean I was doing anything valuable with it. So I was still picking up the carpet, sweeping grief under it, throwing the carpet back down, and bucking up and moving on because of that narrow operating band. So, um, and I would say this, that the narrow emotional operating band was a contributor. It's not the only thing we both went into this marriage very shields up. Sure. And, and and so there's not a lot of intimacy and trust in that kind of thing. Now, frankly, if you want my opinion without intimacy and trust, and you ain't got a long-term relationship.
1: And that's part of the major message in this conversation without intimacy, which means without being willing to be vulnerable, which mm-hmm. means without being willing to feel deeply so that you can feel the, the, the depths and the highs of all your relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have no life. You don't have the full, the full experience of being alive. If you don't allow yourself to feel low, you can't feel the high. So again, re, re, just remind us where we're going because what was that cliffhanger that that mystery there was well the
0: other one was was where i finally had a cataclysmic point where i really had made it the opposite the reverse decision that i had made in my um early 20s i want to say early 20s i was probably 20 actually i think about it when i was 20 i decided never to get that low again (laughs) and when i was in my late 50s, I'm saying I must absolutely go that low, and um, so so the marriage uh, was um, had been deteriorating for a long time, and uh, and it, you know in many ways it probably was never a marriage uh, in the the successful sense. It was we managed to figure out a way to make it work for 24 years. Um, maybe both of us were just not interested in the failure just part of the discussion and that may be it. and that's another story another time another
1: <laughs> whole well, conversation so brian as <laughs> they say people come into our lives for a season a reason mm-hmm. or a lifetime right and and your your ex-wife still your friend uh, mm-hmm. that's you know, right you, you love each other mm-hmm. i would say she's coming to your life for a life lifetime but not necessarily to be your life partner
0: and that and that seems very clear. She, but and I should say, she was definitely instrumentally part of some of my life lessons.
1: And I think that... that's, I think that's one of the major messages I want to bring home in every single conversation that I have on this new podcast. And that is, every relationship in our lives brings us a gift.
0: Um, couldn't have said it better. And the and the gift can be um lessons and co-journeying through lessons. Um sometimes the lessons are what uh what separate us and sometimes lessons bring us tighter together. Um and um I um very, very quickly after the marriage was over, um and I you know I was one of those people that was very cognizant because my work and everything was very cognizant. You don't just rush around and get another relationship um, because you need to have some time to be yourself and all those other things. But I very arrogantly just said, "Oh well," because I grieved. I was the marriage was over years ago. It's just a just a matter of where the ink was signed. It, I've already processed all that. <clears throat> so well, so I thought, and um, the reason why I say so I thought is because I'm still even at the at the termination with the judge signing the paperwork at the end of the contract. Uh, at the end of the uh, marriage, I'm still operating in this narrow band of emotion. <clears throat> and it may have widened a little bit over the years, but because of my daughter and some of these feelings of love and and um, and um, uh, other parameters, but for the most part, I was, and for the most part, I was still operating um, in that squashed zone of emotions in order to never feel that low again.
1: So I, I'm sorry mm-hmm. to interrupt you, but I realized I had not fully edified you Uh, to the extent of sharing with our listeners, uh, the number of things that you do, it's a long list. So, but in in view of this conversation, it's fascinating to me that among the modalities that you have become expert in is neuro-linguistic programming and hypnotherapy, which has everything to do with how our subconscious mind drives the engine.
0: It's kind of interesting to me. I don't think I could have the intimate knowledge with those two modalities that I do without having the journey that I had. I, I've been playing around with NLP for a couple of decades or th- maybe close to three decades because it's uh, it was a tool to support the sales process. Right. It was a very um, circumstantial, and I'd even say somewhat circumspect way to uh, to harness that um modality because it was more like um the uh, maybe questioning even on the ethics side of things if i look at it from my own current view of the practice is that i was using it to uh, to enhance sales results and so i knew what nlp was from a different perspective um what i uh, could not fully appreciate nlp and hypnosis in terms of what they could bring to the table uh, was um was uh, the the concentrated power of our unconscious, um, and uh, and the the processing of emotions in the filters between the conscious and the unconscious mind, uh, largely because I didn't have a real intimate relationship with my own emotions until recently,
1: yes.
0: until recent years. So,
1: so tell um, us, tell us, Brian, please, what happened. What was the magic, so the super sauce? What do we call it? The magic sauce, the super sauce.
0: The Well, I'd say, you know, in many ways, when the ink was dried on the divorce decree, and um, by that point, I had um, um, gotten involved with another uh, woman who was, um, who is in her own right, brilliant. And um um it didn't, it wasn't clear to me, by the way, just a real quick thing is this, the universe has a thing about patterns. Yes. Um, and, um, and I have to say, in some ways, I've always known this at an unconscious level. Here, here was now an opportunity for me to have this sort of conscious thing. And it's like looking at my relationship with my ex-wife, certain kinds of sensitivities that she had that uh, were just... Completely in with who I was. I'm loud and brash, and and um, um, maybe I, don't know, I would not say um, energetically vulgar is probably the best way to put it. Not necessarily language vulgar, <clears throat> and um, and pulling um, uh, a China shop type of energy because I was hyper unaware in many ways. I just wasn't aware of that, that how reactive and animalistic and how um,
1: uh, raw, how and, and,
0: and, but also strictly an external version of this like there wasn't much internal core to work with never got trained in this never had any mentorship in fact it even gets uglier when you look at a lifetime because uh when people are stepping in and say oh, i'd be happy to give you some guidance and i'm going i'll figure it out on my own you know like <laughs> did i not a lot of trust in me so i wasn't going to okay. let anybody come in and start telling me how things work because i'm smart enough to do it on my own you know the, that's the energy I should say. I'm smart enough.
1: And notice where that came from. I mean, the story of your childhood is essential because the story you tell is the grieving of your loss of innocence Mm -hmm. in that you lost trust. Mm -hmm. And that loss of trust has followed you. That's, That's the pattern I see.
0: Right. So keep that word trust in mind because okay. it's going to, it's going to play a very interesting, it's going to come way. in again. Of course. It's going to come in again. So, and for, and ladies and gentlemen who are listening here, um, there is rarely a single emotion at play. <laughs> so, you know, we are, we're complex beings. Exactly. And if we that find is this 25. is what's going on, if you dig a little deeper, you'll find five more, you know, so, so, uh, so uh, yeah. So trust has been a key word uh, in my entire life. Trust, trust, uh, and, uh, and I would say love is a key word in my entire life. Um, and the kind of power of vulnerability would be a key word in my entire life. Not the kind of power of force. I was always a power of force. You know, you, as a narcissist, which is how I spent most of my years.
1: Right, but, you, um, but it's you a power force. Of, you spent most of your life avoiding feeling vulnerable.
0: Right, and then also forging Relationships to fill holes that not having those things as you mm-hmm. describe trust, uh, power and love and all this. so you 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 start curating experiences to fill those holes um, is what I call medicating but you find these relationships um, you are uh, often your relationships are shallow and superficial but they are based on your appearance anyway so by definition uh, shallow and superficial so I uh, the the marriage is over. Um, by legal decree now and um and i have stepped into another relationship but by this point i'm thinking done that cleared that i'm past that it's like because i have not still operating in the narrow emotional band right Right. so i'm not recognizing all the red flags that hadn't been processed yet right I'm i'm not seeing them in the meantime i'm very capable in, uh, without patting myself on the back, but I'm just very capable of seeing other people's forests and trees, even though I can't see the forest from the trees in my own life. Uh, it's kind of a cool thing to note that, uh, I'm, you know, ask me a question. I'll get some answers for you, advice or whatever you want to call it. If I ask me a question, whew, this a whole different story. So
1: um, well, the irony here is you've known me all these years and you know what I do. Right. If you ever, ever come to me, Absolutely. Rem- <laughs> remember
0: the trust thing though.
1: I know. I know.
0: And it's not that you're not trustworthy. I just no. wasn't trusting.
1: Exactly. So,
0: and I find it funny because, uh, <clears throat> funny in an odd way, as funny as somebody funny, funny, haha, <coughs> that grief became probably one of the biggest elements of my life. And this is your, one of your deepest specialties is bereavement counseling. And, um, and here I'm telling you the story and you're going to go, I could have saved you a whole lot of time, Brian, but I was not in a position to reach out to you and, and ask for your advice.
1: And, and you needed to go through that journey in some way, because what, what occurred for you from what you're telling me was some form of precious gift.
0: Yes. So let's go ahead to, I won't call it the final chapter, the latest chapter.
1: Yes, there's no <laughs> I got, I
0: chapter. got 60 more years ahead of me. I'm, <laughs> I'm keeping up with you.
1: Okay. There you go.
0: So, um, so, um, the, um, that relationship that, uh, that I brought in, um, after my marriage, um, it was, Actually, in the beginning, it was beautiful. And I mean beautiful because I was leaning in all on all this lesson, grabbing. I was no longer resisting learning. And I even at this point grabbed onto some kinds of coaches. Um, we, you know, we know somebody named Nancy Matthews in common.
1: Yes. So,
0: so I, she was one of my first coaches, uh, Marty Ward, if you know her, I was working yes. with her Good and, Good and, uh, and Marty actually was technically my first coach. Um, and I have a whole story about that, but let's tell that another time um and um and it's not that and and you know and I'm just gonna leave with the audience this one thing this is part of what I was happening i i've been hearing this phrase for many years, if not decades, is that a smart person learns from their mistakes, which is the premise by which I operated my life smart person learns from their mistakes
1: an emo- however wait, the
0: wise person
1: wait, 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 per- wait look, an emotionally smart person
0: well. I'd say in both levels, emotion okay. or intellect, will will learn from. They can learn for themselves.
1: Well, uh, but a,
0: a wise person,
1: a wise person
0: will learn from the mistakes of others.
1: Ah, that's a great distinction. Yes.
0: So, I'm. So several years ago, I made this decision uh, to learn from the mistakes of others. I just the the phrase I had heard many times finally struck home. It finally made sense uh, in a way that it never had before, because I was suddenly able to, like, even though trust had always been an operating word in my life, I had made a decision to lean in on learning something about the inside of me in order to make that reach inside i had to which was a very painful place to go there was nothing there it was kind of dark and cavernous and you know echoey You're like hello hello You're like you'd you know in fact i could make the sound effect hello i can't do it i guess if it's not working on my device here <laughs> hello so uh the uh but the idea was is that i since i'd been operating in this external frame for most of my life um and i just somehow rather i had, had this one experience which kind of left me um, well I had a few along the way, the adoption of my daughter had some impact and uh, and some other things along the way. It kind of opened the door to the idea that uh, I was not a happy camper with this external persona um, um, and that um when the marriage was over, I kind of like was just going, "I have a luxury here that I had never been afforded before to kind of just lean in on my own life and look carefully at my own journey." instead of being reactive and um, mask up and all those things, I finally just said, let me start looking at the patterns of my life and see what I can do to, um, to, to learn from them. And then of course, I'm, I'm now in this receiving state, self-supportable receiving state. And then that phrase, learn the mistakes by yourself as smart, learn the mistakes from others is wisdom. Um, and I just immediately, you know, picked up a couple of coaches along the way. And it wasn't that I'm a, you know, and, and I'm not saying I'm a genius, but it wasn't that I was stupid, although I was emotionally stupid and I was, um, and I'm not using that as a sense of judgment. I'm just saying, it's just kind of describing no, this.
1: We this. all know, exactly. We all know that emotional intelligence is a whole different mm-hmm. world of intelligence than right. IQ or uh, other forms of intelligence. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: And, I'm, and I had this one experience, I would almost call it a prophetic or, emotion, or a spiritual experience of sorts, which um, maybe it would have to be another whole show. It could be another whole thing by itself. But let's just say is that it did happen that I had an opportunity to um, to just feel kind of a glow of energy inside of me that had never been... Uh, it- it felt it almost felt like it had always been there. it just now is starting to be revealed and um and I wanted more of that and so that's that's part of this thing it was it was something that just come to me almost in a dream like a tossing turning night and then it was like a a dream in dream out dreamless dream fold state I can't explain what it was but um and in that in that particular night i kind of had these like epiphanies that were taking place that were kind of saying, it's time for you to shift. It's time for you to change. You're not happy. You know, you're not happy. Now it's time for you to take ownership of your unhappiness instead of, um, um, you know, the way I was looking for medicating it all the time with, with, you know, whether it was a beautiful woman in my, as a relationship or whether I was successful in my business, all those things were success trappings that supported my external image. And um, in the meantime, all of that is being sustained by the energy of grief I was not processing. If you think about it, all of that was sustainable only because I was not processing the grief. Otherwise it might've collapsed much earlier than it did. Hmm. Um, but because I was so hell bent on not feeling those lows and not feeling any depression attached to the grief, I was not processing um, that uh, it finally was coming to a head. So this this woman after the marriage, um, um, we were forging a business together. Um, I considered her a love interest. Um, so it was a partnership for me in every way that was possible, but there were lots of red flags looking back on this, but during the thing, I was just, I was forging another relationship to, uh, with some new stuff coming in. Some of these new dynamics of self-learning, deep diving, building an internal core, all these other things that are happening for me personally at the same time as I'm still coaching people, I'm just transitioning from leadership and corporate type work into personal transformation work with people because in the process of supporting them and their journeys, I'm supporting myself. Cause as probably anybody would know is in the space, you do some great healing on your own when you're helping others heal.
1: So and, you uh, are now jumping into the pool of the, the, full spectrum of emotions. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah, I was pretty much. And it was, it was, uh, it, it um, it was definitely new territory. And in many ways, uh, there were moments where it was scary. So, um, so some of the old versions of me would, you know, it wasn't like I just erased it. I was stepping away from it, but it, some oh, of of the, so, so the, this, the post marriage relationship, um, which had a very, very smooth start and maybe even, maybe it was at the halfway part where the wheels started to come off. And um, it's, you know, and I look at this idea is, is when people talk about tr- the transition relationships after, you know, you know yes. it, very likely that was a pattern I thought wasn't going to be the case, it turned out very likely it was the case. So, um, however, the thing that was interesting to me is that um, finally that person uh, just Um, disappeared for all intents and purposes. Now we had physical distance between us already and then just no communication. And I, um, and we had all kinds of things scheduled public speaking engagement and some other things we were working on. And, and so I lost my business partner, my love interest, um, all of, and I'm a very like pick a take a picture of where you're going vision and go home in, in on that vision and pursue the vision, and everything kind of fills in along right. the way. It's, that's the way I've lived my life in many ways. Now I'm looking at it with spiritual and emotional support, and all these other things as part of that vision picture. And um, and, and then all rid- that.
1: And you had risks. You had you had find the courage. Found the courage. You had allowed yourself to be vulnerable to the point where you were all in. You were in that pool. Mm-hmm and then she disappears she disappears so worst nightmare right
0: now mind you i look at my relationship with her as just a path to the to the ultimate trigger on this thing about grief yes
1: it's so lost. it's lost it was
0: another loss and i lost everything the because it wasn't just her disappearing it was the partnership disappearing the it dream. was the dream the, and the vision went dark Like I could no longer see, like I can usually see where I'm going, like I do now, but at the time I could not see any, I could not see past my hand, so to speak, in terms of what the future held. And, um, I still wasn't processing this. So I went to the public speaking engagement that we were supposed to have done together. And I stand up on stage. I crafted my speech 10 minutes before the presentation, not because of anything is I didn't know what I was going to talk about. You know, we're on podcast. I could probably speak any way I want to, but I didn't know what I was going to talk about. And, um, and then I just had sort of an inspiration and vision download from the universe, whatever it was. And I wrote this whole thing out. And it actually began not knowing then, it began my platform that I use today. So um, the,
1: Isn't Isn't that amazing?
0: It was kind of, fortuitous and exciting to look back on and go holy cow the universe was working with me then
1: yeah and you you can say thank you to her for coming and i'm i have
0: no like now i could just say is is as much pain as that 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 time was i'm extremely grateful for um the the fact that when I came, so I went. I drove someplace, twenty-four hour trip to go do that public speaking engagement because I failed to buy a plane ticket, <laughs> oh, and I and I wasn't even sure if I was going. And then I made a last minute decision to go, right. and uh, and I went. I spoke, and then when I came back, I wasn't feeling well. And um, to make a long story short, because I could tell this part of the story in another two hours of talking. But um, I ended have, up...
1: Which we don't have today.
0: I ended up with... We the, might have
1: another time for part three, but... Uh,
0: multiple vectors of life-threatening health issues cropped up, up immediately. One of which was a pulmonary embolism. Ooh. So... <clears throat> I... um Now I'm swimming in this new healing arts space and it very quickly came to me because I've been hearing this before that sadness shows up in the lungs. Depression shows up in the lungs. Yes. Grief shows up in the lungs, which is why people hyperventilate or they can't breathe or they feel the weight of the world is in their chest, right? When they're going through depression and all these things. And here I'm getting the ultimate signal from my body, My body is failing me, so to speak. You would think so, at least. But what I look at it from this is that my unconscious mind was saying to you, you're either going to die or you're going to learn. And when that message arrived with me, then I uh, made another decision, the reversing decision, to go really low. Wow. Embrace the grief. Wallow in it.
1: Cry. Uh,
0: revel cry. in it. Yes. Crying was like the least of it. It was just look at this as the a place to no longer be afraid of, a place to no longer avoid. Just treat it like it's your best friend who keeps dumping stuff on you. I must I don't to do with your radio show. I don't talk this way on the, my radio, my own radio show, but, (laughs) but, but the, um, but just dumping stuff on you, that friend that keeps coming over and like leaves a trail of debris chaos when they're out the door, you're going to go, that was, while they were there, it was just whatever the chaos was. And, and so, um, and so it was an extraordinary experience. It was, uh, and I just, uh, it was a few months. I have to say I wasn't frozen, but I was largely just staying in place uh, because it wasn't like I, th- I this time I didn't want to skip past it. I did not any longer want to sweep it under the carpet. I didn't any longer want to, to feel I couldn't have high moments. I didn't want to feel like I couldn't even go low anymore. I'm assuming that my life will have other moments of grief. Somebody or something will come along that creates loss. But I'm completely differently prepared for it today, because of that in, um, intense embracing of grief that I had swept under the carpet for five plus decades, and um, so that's why I'm saying I'm grateful to transition woman, um, because that wouldn't have happened without those triggers, or wouldn't maybe it would have happened in a different way. But I was I also the very reason why I made the decision not to go low was because of life threatening things. And now because of light and effort and life, uh, threatening things, I made the very decision to go low.
1: So that you could live and so I could live, and experience life and, and, and also go high
0: and go high. Right. And ultimately since we were talking about grief and love, so I want to kind of connect the dots here. Um, it freed my internal core to have the full revelatory experience as being a foundation in my life, as opposed to being something incidental. Right. So now I can wake up each day full of my power, not as, you, as others would say, power like you're going to war or power of force, power of my uh, vulnerability and my ability to uh, trust. Um, like I've never trusted before Um, sense of self-love like never felt before because of embracing and processing and holding on to It's almost like you, you're, you're forming diamonds in your hand from coal, you know, that kind of thing is the the power of your life is shape-shifting all this crud into something like a gem now. And, um, and having um, profoundly new ways to discover things too. Like I now see things with some kind of vibrancy and clarity that was not available to me before. Cause I in many ways, when you're operating that narrow emotional band, you still got kinds of protective cloudy layers in your experience that block you from not only just those emotions, but block you from some of the vibrance of life in general. So as to your point is, you know, my point was grief connected me to love like I've never felt before. Grief connected me to joy like I've never felt before by just leaning in on it. And ultimately grief connected me because the pulmonary embolism was a life-threatening event. It connected me to breathing and living again like I've never lived before.
1: That is a beautiful, profound message that I almost don't wanna touch. (laughs) In other words, that's That's a way of of concluding this arc of this conversation that began with this little boy who experienced grief and didn't know what that was. And he instinctively decided to protect himself from feeling that uh, by thinking that he could live a life without feeling the lows, not realizing, that by doing that, he'd cut off the highs. And it took you five decades to get to this point of realization and feeling what being alive is really all about. And you've reminded us all that grief can be our greatest gift, our greatest treasure, because it's a reminder that life is precious, love is precious. We are precious. What you've touched on, Brian, is how important it is to get to the point where we attain a level of self-love that brings us to the capacity of being able to love others deeply. Because we're not worrying about, are they going to like us? Are they going to hurt us? Because we've now... We've gone down as low as we can go. We felt the depths of that. And we realize that what's far more dangerous for us is to not be willing to feel at all. And Brene Brown says so wisely in the work that she's brought to all of us, vulnerability is the birthplace of belonging, community, connection, and creativity. That without vulnerability, we cannot be intimate with ourselves or with others and without intimacy, how can we feel the depths of life and the, and the joys of life and the joys of being alive with, with everything there is to enjoy in every relationship that matters. And if in the relationships that matter, we hold ourselves back because we're afraid, we don't have a relationship. So, This conversation is so central to everything this podcast is designed to bring to you, my dear listeners, because it's about how to make love better for yourself, how to make love better for the relationships that you're living so that you can live fully without the fear of feeling the lows, to recognize it. The blessing of feeling the lows is being able to feel the highs, being able to feel that great joy and feel the freedom that comes from not having to look over your shoulder or look for someone else to validate you or say to you, you're okay.
0: You had shared with us a quote or a poem at the beginning of this podcast. And one of the last uh, stanzas in that was that grief was the price of love. Yes. And um, I actually want to say uh, maybe a little bit of a different phrase that, that, um, that has been steeped in my own experience, that grief is the path to love.
1: That's beautiful. I'd be willing to, to add to that quote, to expand on that quote. I think, I think from what you've shared in this conversation, Brian, I would agree that grief is the path, to, because grief is inevitable. It's not inevitable that we acknowledge it or go through it or deal with it, but your story has reminded us all that in all of our lives, there is grief that we don't even see for what it is. And to the extent that it has shut us down, shut us off from being who we are, once we are willing to feel it and to go through it, we do find the path to love to ourselves and to others. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for your story. Thank you for telling the kind of story that is really everyone's story.
0: And think about this thing too. So we had shared, you know, this is my final thought, so you can actually close your podcast out. So <laughs> but the, the thing the thing that um that um my story has brought to the table is like is um I held nothing back. I mean, I may have left some tidbits out just for the protection of others, but I held nothing back about my own, my journey. This story, I couldn't have told 10 years ago because it would have been, felt shameful because I was not standing in my power, not having the ability to be vulnerable, not having a sense of self-love that sustains all of these things, not having a sense of trust uh, that I could tell my stories. And, and I spend my work right now is, is all about helping people Tell their authentic story because that brings all of these things—truth, trust, love, power, life, um, everything—into the front burner of their lives, as opposed to something that's been suppressed and or stomped on, or whatever the case may be.
1: Beautiful. So So I I, I
0: appreciate you letting me share my story. I really do. I appreciate. I,
1: I am so deeply grateful for your telling the story, and I want to give you the opportunity to just plug yourself. I want to shine the spotlight on you and to just, just remind us where your now current radio show has come from. So we appreciate your story even more fully.
0: Well, the show, I mean, from my life's mission for the, the, hopefully the next 60 years that's left. Uh, uh, So whatever the, my journey looks like, wherever it comes to us, my, my journey is to raise the vibration of all of humanity or the planet or however you'd like to do it. And, um, and I believe that comes from essentially the key word is love. And, uh, and so I have, I'm building a community called million dollar feeling. Um, It's organic. It's not, uh, it's not highly engineered growth or anything like that. Although it's picking up its own pace and nestled inside of that is my radio show. It's a broadcast radio show, not a podcast. Um, no judgments about podcasts. I just think, and eventually I'll have a podcast at the same time, I guess. Um, the, uh, but I, and I love doing the broadcast radio show because it reaches an audience um, of a different nature. And inside of this is everybody who listens. And they're all available as a podcast in some ways for replay. Everybody who um, listens should be able to take some tidbit out of every show that will somehow rather uplift their life. Um, or help somebody else uplift theirs, which, by the way, helps us lift our lives up anyway. So um, so Million Dollar Feeling is just this burgeoning community and a now almost two-year-long running broadcast radio show. And it's also the core of my work, which is helping people feel that million-dollar feeling. And it's strange that that's the title. Now, it's, it's, it just dawns on me how interesting the title of this operation is a random title that was given to me by somebody else, the person who left my life. uh, So just to make all those trigger things happen, it was her thing, million dollar feeling. But it turns out that's everything I'm doing is about helping people elicit a million dollar feeling.
1: So Brian Baird, thank you for episode two of our inaugural podcast Making well, love I, and I again,
0: thank you for letting me you know, share some time with you. You and I are, I, I keep feeling every time we talk, it just makes us, our bonds that much tighter.
1: It does indeed. So once again, it, this is all about making love better. And as you can see, this conversation really addressed some of the, the most fundamental role that grief plays in helping us to have that million dollar feeling to have that feel great experience because all of life is about how we experience it and we experience it through our emotions, our spirit, our bodies. Otherwise we wouldn't be in our bodies. That's why we call the feelings emotions. So I welcome you uh, to uh, join us for the next episode. And until then, I want to say goodbye to all of you and thank you again to Brian Baird bye for now
0: bye bye everybody